Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today, we're taking you through the best bits of The Tipping Point by Malcolm Gladwell, the Gladwellian master, how little things can make a big difference. This could be one of the most, in terms of good reads, we use good reads as our measure of how popular a book is. This is way up there with 750,000 plus, three quarters of a million people who have rated this on good reads. Well, mate, he uh, he wrote the book on how to make a tipping point on, on products. And it so. became a tipping point. There you go. So the tipping point is really about how to understand the emergence of fashion trends, the ebb and flow of crime waves, the rise or fall of teenage smoking, or how to turn an unknown book into a bestseller. So right. there you go. He's used it well. So he says the best way to understand any of these things is to think of them as epidemics. So ideas, products, messages, and behaviors, they just spread like just like viruses. Now, living in a world of, a, of an epidemic, it's like the, the metaphor actually is probably quite applicable right now. Everybody sort of understands how viruses spread pretty well mm-hmm. these days. So uh, he did well. He was you know, 20 years ahead of the curve. But I suppose they've always been viruses. <laughs> I suppose it well, it's a pretty powerful analogy, mate. It's uh, we use it in in our book. So, well, but I, but we use it before reading this. So we. But the people who like so like Seth wrote a book, unleashing the idea virus, fully ripped this and admits it. Contagious Jonah Berger ripped this. You know, a lot of a lot of the books that we've read and we've taken it from have basically ripped off the Gladmaster. Well, I think it just is the best, most powerful analogy for how ideas spread. So it is brilliant <laughs> in that sense. So in this episode, we're going to cover. The three principles of tipping points. So contagiousness, how little changes have big effects and changes happening in a hurry. So that's the three things that sort of characterize an epidemic. And then there's actually three rules or three things you can do that make it spread. The law of the few, the stickiness factor and the power of context. So we'll look at the three elements that make something a tipping point and the three things that make tipping points happen. And of course, depending on how you want to use this, we can answer a couple of questions based on these principles. One is, why do some ideas or products or behaviors, why do they start epidemics and catch on while others don't? And of course, if you want to deliberately start an epidemic of your own, maybe you can harness some of these powers. Depending on how old you are will depend on your memories of a little shoe called Hush Puppies, this classic American brushed suede shoe with a lightweight crepe sole. It's good marketing. Uh, The Hush Puppies, they had this tipping point somewhere between late 1994 and early 1995. Up until this point, the brand had been basically dead. They were selling 30,000 pairs a year, mostly to these old school mum and pop, out of town, small regional stores. In fact, the company was thinking about phasing the shoe out altogether, but then something strange happened. So after 30,000 sales in 1994, which wasn't a hell of a lot in the context of things, and nearly just phasing out this line entirely. In 1995, the company sold 430,000 pairs of classic Hutch puppies. Well, that's a over 10 times increase. And in 1996, it went up to 1.7 mil over another 10 times increase. And in 97, it was 2 million. So between 1994, they were 30,000 all the way up to 2 million just three years later, right? So what's that? Um, a factor of what, Ash Show? 60. <laughs> That's a big jump. That's all I can say is it's a very big jump from 30,000 up to 2 mil in a couple of short years. Now, the president of Hush Puppies, he was the first to admit that he and the whole company had nothing to do with this. Mate, you you'd think he'd want to claim oh, it, yeah? 100%. You'd, you'd go, so, folk, what's focal is causal? <laughs> you'd be jumping right on the, 
the media bandwagon and it's putting you slapping your face and your own brand on this on this increase. You just say I had this brand new revolutionary strategy, this underground marketing approach that really turned the company around. But really, he said, I've got no idea. It just took off. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, the glad man did some digging and he found that it was really down to this handful of a couple of young kids in East Village and Soho, in New York City, in Manhattan. But they were the first ones who just almost accidentally started this whole epidemic. Yeah, they weren't deliberately themselves trying to promote hush puppies. They were only just wearing them just because no one else was, right? They were on the the cutting trend Mm. of coolness at the time. And because these influences of, say, the 1995, this little fad of this small group of people spread to two eclectic fashion designers who used the shoes on a runway at a fashion show. And again, not to show off the shoes, they were trying to show off the, the other garments. Yeah, they just used those shoes because they were dull, boring, basic shoes and they didn't want to detract from the fancy, eclectic fashions they were putting on. But of course, people saw these shoes on the runway and thought, oh, I might grab a pair of those for myself. <laughs> so, mate, this is very early days on this pandemic. You could say you're still in uh, the middle of the, the, the Wuhan lab at this stage, <laughs> <laughs> using that analogy. <laughs> but all of a sudden, it, it kind of just crept out of the lab and then uh, into the fish markets. <laughs> That's it, mate. Then this, I guess is it, this is the equivalent of someone chomping down on a tasty bat or pangolin. And then uh, all of a sudden, it tipped. So the question becomes, you know, how does a $30 pair of shoes that was basically dead in the water, a couple of hipsters in Manhattan... And magically spread it to millions of sales in less than two years. Let's leave that hush puppy story for a second and have a look at a second story of New York City crime. So there was a time a little while ago that a desperately poor neighborhoods of New York City, say Brownsville and East New York, they turned into ghost towns at dusk. There's no way that you'd walk the streets because there was just gangsters riding around everywhere. The drug trade was absolutely rampant. Gang warfare was so ubiquitous. In a part of Brooklyn, you'd be literally just bunkering down at night not to just cop a bullet in the, in the left shoulder. So in 1992, in New York City, there were 2,100 murders and 626,000 serious crimes. That's a lot, man. That's a... <laughs> 2,100 murders, man. That's a lot of murders. That's like, what, six to eight a day, plus in 626,000 crimes. I don't even know the maths on that, but that's a hell of a lot. You're that's, what, 2,000 a day? You're hearing bullets on every, every night, essentially. Yeah, exactly. But then... Again, something strange happened. Very strange. Again, at some mysterious point, the crime rate began to turn back down. It started decreasing and it tipped. Within five years, murders had dropped by 65%, so they were down to 770, and total crimes had been cut in half down to 350,000. Now, it's still a lot, but that's half in a couple of years. Mm. That's a big tip. That's not like a, a gradual decrease. That's a tip. It just went smash. And so the crime was disappearing at a wild rate. So all of a sudden, you, again, you had your streets fill up with pedestrians and bicycles and old folk not too afraid of getting a bullet in the left shoulder. <laughs> and the police chief said, there was a time when it wasn't uncommon to hear rapid gunfire like in the jungles of Vietnam. But we just don't hear that gunfire anymore. That'd be that you'd be pretty happy with that. You'd be able you to would. walk out on the street again. And of course, you know, the, everyone was trying to describe or explain what had happened. There was all these sorts of explanations, things like improved policing strategies, the decline of the drug trade, the aging population, the gradual improvement of the city's economy. The problem with these explanations is that, well, firstly, they're just slow, gradual things. They're not like something that changes by half, by a factor of two in a couple of short years. Also, these same things were happening all over the country and they didn't see the same amount of rapid drops. So again, what sort of caused the crime rate to plummet so rapidly in such a short period of time? 
So the Hush Puppies example and the New York City crime example are textbook cases of epidemics in action. Although they don't sound like they've got much in common, like just bullets in the street and hush puppies on the runway, they have the same basic underlying pattern. So the pattern of the spread of things like the hush puppy shoes and things like the decreasing crime rate in New York City, they match this trajectory and that was the spread of epidemics. Now we're going to go through three characteristics of what an epidemic is and the first major characteristic is contagiousness. Think of the word contagiousness, it probably brings into the mind cold, flus, perhaps something a bit more dangerous like HIV or Ebola or something more recent, but we have in our minds a very specific biological notion of what contagiousness means. But if there can be epidemics of viruses, then there can also be epidemics of fashion or crime like we were saying before in the opening section. One way to just think about contagiousness, taking it away from the virus sense, is the idea about yawning. Now, yawning, it's a surprisingly mm. powerful act just because you heard us say the word yawning just before and now we've said yawning three or four times since then and you heard Jonesy do a little yawn. It's probably a good chance that a fair number of people listening have probably yawned at some point in the last minute or so. Yeah, it, every time I read that section, I yawn. Mate, it, gets, it gets me every time. Mate, should we wrap it up? <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. We'll keep going. Not time to snooze. But think about it. If you're in a public space, there's a good chance that if you yawn and you're buddy you're chatting with yawned as well someone else is looking at you probably yawned also so for no other reason than they saw you do it yeah so that's like a spreading of the yawn and yawning is incredibly contagious so just by reading the word yawn or hearing somebody yawn there's a good chance you yawn if you see somebody else yawn you're probably going to do it as well and sort of the next phase of the infection of the yawn is that once you yawn just because you yawned you start getting the feeling that oh, maybe i'm a bit tired maybe i didn't get such a good sleep last night maybe it's time for a bit of a nap so just going from reading the word yawn to then yawning you've implanted this epidemic that perhaps you're a little bit tired well we dropped that word plenty of times now so we'll see i feel one coming on so contagiousness is an unexpected property of all kinds of acts and phenomena. So we need to remember this when we're diagnosing an epidemic change. Second characteristic of an epidemic... Man, I feel a bit, I'm genuinely feeling a bit yeah, tired. Yeah, me too. <clears throat> I really am. Uh, the se- the and second- my brain is going to how I woke up at <laughs> 3 a.m. 3, 3 the, yeah. one, the one morning I let myself sleep in, <laughs> I woke up at 3 a.m. and I can get back to sleep. Bad luck, Jones, man. The second characteristic of a pandemic is that little changes lead to big effects. So as you'll know from listening to the podcast or having read the book, The Shit They Never Taught You, you'll know how dumb humans are. We've got a whole section on just how dumb our human brain is. We have evolved to have this rough approximation between cause and effect. We think that if something big happens, something big had to have caused it. But actually, the world of epidemics is totally different, that something very big can happen from a very small starting point. Let's think of the following puzzle. So let's say we give you a piece of paper, which is very large, and you fold it once in half, then you fold it again and again and again, and you fold it 50 times. So how tall do you think this paper would be after, say, 50 folds? Well, you'd start to picture it in your mind. You'd fold it over once. It's very thin now. It's like twice as thick, but it's still extremely thin. You fold it again, still extremely thin. Maybe if you fold it in your brain 50 times, you might think it's maybe the size of a, a phone book, or if you're super brave, you might say it's as tall as a refrigerator. Well, that's, a, that's pretty big, just from a tiny piece of paper up to a refrigerator. Well, that's a big, it's a big estimate there, the refrigerator, but you're not even close there, mate, <laughs> because 
If you fold it 50 times, it's going to reach the sun. <laughs> That's, mate, you can't even believe it. From a 0.1 millimeter piece of paper, folding it 50 times, it gets to 112 million kilometers tall. So it reaches the mm. sun. So this is an example of geometric progression. It doesn't just add it each time and it multiplies. And our brain has a very hard time uh, understanding mm. geometric progression. So if it doubles, it doubles again, it doubles again. At the start, it's very small and hard to notice, but soon the doublings get exponentially bigger. Yeah, from one to two and then two to four, four to eight, that's pretty much nothing. But as soon as you start getting from 50,000 to 100,000, 100,000 to 200,000, every doubling is ridiculously large. Now, the third principle of epidemics is that things happen very, very quickly. So this says that things seem like it's a very sudden change happening in an instant. So, you know, imagine one night... You're going to bed. It's a pretty chilly night, and we're in the mountains here in Australia. Um, and are we in the mountains? No, we're let's not. just say there no, is mountains. There is mountains. Let's <laughs> just you know picturing yourself in the mountains, <laughs> oh, okay. sort of thing. I show. But there's uh, frost one day, and there's not much snow. Then you go to bed and you wake up, and say the temperature just changes by a few degrees, and then all of a sudden the landscape changes. There's snow, and all it took is that that small, minimal, marginal change, mm. and then the whole landscape changes. Yeah, it's like nothing happens from, uh, you know, in Celsius from 10 down to 5, down to 4, down to 3. Nothing changes. It gets colder and colder and colder, but it's almost like building up. But as soon as you cross from 0.1 to negative 0.1, that tiny one change, everything happens in an instant. From that, uh, that sudden tipping point, things happen very quickly. Water becomes ice. So in our minds, we have the expectation that change happens slowly and gradually, but in the world of the tipping point, all it takes is one small change and things will tip and the outcomes will be exponentially different to what it was. So they were the three characteristics of the trajectory of an epidemic reaching that point of a tipping point. So it's contagious, it spreads from person to person, the idea of little changes leading to big results, and then that idea that change happens so quickly. And that tipping point is when everything seems to sort of click into place and tips and you get that almost instantaneous change. Next, we're going to look at the three things that you can do to either spot a tipping point coming or to create your own tipping point. We're going to talk about the law of the few, the stickiness factor, and the power of context. So Gladwellian looked at the metaphor of the spread of diseases and how they spread as epidemics. So You've got the spread of HIV in the 1980s, the spread of syphilis through Baltimore in the 1990s, and the spread of gonorrhea through Colorado. So disease is spreading in a lot of places with a few interesting characteristics. Let's zoom in on the Colorado uh, gonorrhea epidemic. One of the US's leading epidemiologists, John Potterart, is that how you say it? Potterart? Yes. He, <laughs> he, uh, he interviewed all these people that came through the public health services with gonorrhea over a six-month period. And what he found was that half of those cases had come from only four neighborhoods, which was only 6% of the geographic area. So 6% of the geographic area accounted for half of the cases. And then looking at those cases, half of those were actually all from the same six bars. So we're talking about 20% of this entire epidemic can be linked back to the same six bars. So he drilled down even further and pottery out, uh, interview, <laughs> <laughs> interviewed a subsection of this 25% of cases. And out of that, he interviewed 768 patients and found that 600 of them either passed it to one or nobody. 
And this meant that there was 168 were the super spreaders. So in a city of 100,000 people in Colorado Springs, 168 hanging out in six bars, just picking up every night was all it took for the gonorrhea to tip to epidemic levels infecting a population. So who are these 168 super spreader types that are spreading this epidemic all through the population? Well, Gladwell says, look, they're not like people like you or I. Mm. And so I'd say I wouldn't put myself in the super spreader category. What about Jones Man? You could you could have been a super spreader. In a oh, form of life. it wasn't a super spreader. <laughs> it wasn't a super spreader, oh, mate. A potential, I, <laughs> potential. If I was, uh, if I didn't protect it. But there are in basically there's, life. <laughs> there's these types of people. These are the types of people who go into bars every single night. They're having multiple sexual partners every single week. Perhaps multiple sexual partners in a, in the same session. One example, he calls Boss Man McGee. Now, Boss Man McGee, he used to hang out in roller skating rinks and pool halls. He was a tall six-foot bloke. He was really good at roller skating, and so he'd wow the girls by doing these skating tricks. Mm. Now, Boss Man McGee's specialty was 13- and 14-year-old girls. He'd buy them jewelry. He'd take them for rides in his Cadillac. He'd sleep with them, and he'd give them STDs. Uh, eventually, someone took a disliking to Boss Man. It wouldn't be hard to find someone who wanted to take Boss Man down. He was shot dead, and at that point, he was found to have slept with 100 underage girls and infected at least 30 of them. You know, another bloke whose specialty was just the, the, old, the old-fashioned orgy. <laughs> so he had different apartments throughout the city, three or four girlfriends in each one, juggling dozens of sexual partners each week. He'd have a group of friends he'd hang out with, and they had a group of girlfriends, and they would just just load up having these wild orgies um, in the same house, having sex from person to person, and you know a lot of fun until they have to go to the doctor's office mm. the, the week later because big old uh, old his nickname was Face or Sly, and uh, <laughs> yeah, he was he was he was a super spreader. And then, the you least. Get, then you got another bloke. Uh, we should probably. He gave his real name. He should probably hide his identity. He was a Canadian flight attendant. Uh, we'll, we'll call him Mr. D. Now, Mr. D was flying in and out of cities, and apparently every night he'd go to a new city and find a new sexual partner. Mr. D claimed that he'd racked up 2,500 sexual partners throughout his life. Hmm. So people like this, Boss Man McGee, we got the we got Face the Orgy Man, we got Mr. D, the flight attendant. These are the types of people who are quite simply spreading this disease's so social epidemics are spread in the exact same way. They spread from person to person, but it's not just the normal Joe Blow on the street that are able to spread their idea virus the most. There's a handful of exceptional people, the ones that drive forward ideas or trends or products. Yeah, it's factors like how sociable people are, how many people they know, how much they know about a certain niche, how persuasive they are. All of these factors are things that tie into someone becoming a super spreader that can spread either a virus like gonorrhea or they can spread a social epidemic like those blokes wearing hush puppies. Yeah, the hush puppies blokes were just a small handful of fashion forward hipsters in Manhattan and they were the ones that triggered a tipping point, right? Because they were kind of dictating what's cool and then from there it got spread onto the, the runway and then from there it was a fashion epidemic that had been released into the population. So those hipsters, they were the equivalent of Mr. D rooting 2,500 people in different cities or the equivalent of Face having orgies every single night. These were the types of people that were the super spreaders of this word of mouth virus. So just before in the law of the few, we focus on the messenger. We looked at the type of people that are most likely to spread the virus. 
Next, we're going to be looking at the second rule of epidemics, and this is the stickiness factor. So we're looking at the message itself because it doesn't matter how... I just flowing on from the orgy bloke to call it the stickiness <laughs> factor. It was a bit of a mistake by Gladwell, I reckon. <laughs> well, we Apologies for that. The episode in because it doesn't matter how influential the messenger is. If the message sucks, it's not going to catch on. <laughs> oh, God. So, yeah, so that's the difference. The message of the messenger. We spoke about the messengers before. The, you need this, the right type of people. Now, think about the message. You need the right type of message. Stickiness obviously sounds pretty straightforward. You think that if you've got some really valuable piece of information or a really cool new product, that's the type of thing that will catch on. But there's actually a few minor elements, a few counterintuitive things that actually can make something tip or not tip. So in the 1960s, there was a social psychologist called Howard Levanthal, and he wanted to see if he could persuade a group of college seniors at Yale University to get a tetanus shot. So he divided his participants into different groups and gave them all a seven-page information booklet. And he explained the dangers of tetanus, the importance of inoculation, and the fact that the university was now offering free shots to all students. So these booklets were, were largely similar, but like any study, you divide them into different groups. One group was the high fear version, which amplified every element. It used dramatic language. It used vivid imagery of what tetanus is and what it can do to you. They had color photos of a child having a seizure from tetanus. They had uh, a patient popping in a urinary catheter. Uh, they had tracheotomy Ooh. wounds and nasal tubes. So all of these things that you'd look at that and you think, geez, I don't want that. Yeah, you don't want any of that. So you got that, <laughs> that factor in which you don't want. And then you got another version, which is a low fear version, which had more subtle explanations and reasons to get your tetanus shot. So the descriptions were toned down and the images were just omitted. You don't see a bloke getting a catheter up the willy. <laughs> so Levanthal wanted to compare these two different versions of the booklet and see how much it would impact the results. And how many students with each booklet would get their shots? The results came as a bit of a surprise. When they tested everybody again a month later, they found that they actually had a pretty good idea of what tetanus was and what the dangers were. Turns out only 3% of the people had actually followed through to get their tetanus shot. So basically, it didn't matter if they had the easy, the, the soft version or the hard version of this. It didn't really matter. No one really bothered going and getting that tetanus shot. So what they did is they went back and did the test, but with one small change. And this time they had a 10 times improvement in results. So they had 30% of the students who had this booklet go and get their tetanus shot. Interestingly, of that 30%, again, it was very evenly split between the high fear and the low fear. So you'd think that the high fear with the images and the violent imagery and the, the vivid language would tip somebody over the edge. Turns out that had no impact. The thing that did tip them over the edge that had a 10x result was that on the back page, they had a map of the university with a circle on where the medical center was and said, hey, come right to this point and get your tetanus shot. Yeah, it's pretty weird. A very small thing, a subtle thing that you'd probably rationally just think there's no reason why that would actually cause the, the tipping point. And uh, if you had three options in the table, you'd probably go high fear, right? To ramp that oh, yeah. up. You'd but, ramp that up big time. But epidemics, sometimes they've got these strange little tips that put the, the things that have the highest impacts that mm. you wouldn't really expect. And the thing was, because these were uh, people who had been living and going to classes at this university for three or four years. It wasn't like they didn't know where the medical center was. Everybody knew exactly where it was. Mm. 
So the map wasn't giving them new information of you know where to go and what to do. They already knew that. All the map did was simply show, hey, here it is. This is how you can work it into your day. So they sort of started manually thinking rather than this being a document full of information, it became a document where they could take some action out of it. So we won't bring our metaphor from the last section into this one because it starts getting people switching off the episode, I think. (laughs) Stickiness in the context (laughs) of the boss man and whatnot. But we all want to believe that making an impact on someone lies with the inherent quality of the ideas we present. But in a lot of cases, it doesn't really have too much to do with just the inherent quality It's or even the content of what you're saying. Instead, sometimes the tipping is from tinkering just away at the margins or just the subtle difference in presentation of ideas. So the law of the few said that there are some exceptional people out there who are capable of starting and spreading epidemics. All you have to do is find them. Now, in this lesson, the stickiness factor, it's, it's very much the same. There is a simple way of packaging information that can make it irresistible All you have to do is find it. The third rule of epidemics and tipping points is the power of context. And this looks into the conditions and the circumstances of the times and places in which epidemics occur. So the STDs, they found that they spread more during summer because that's when people were out and about partying and having more sex. Hush puppies, that spread through New York because it was seen as this cutting-edge, fashion-forward part of the world. So we're extremely sensitive to our environments. Context plays a massive part in which epidemics spread and which ones don't. So the next study we're going to look at, and this has popped up in another book. Do you remember when? I don't remember. It's popped up a couple of times, I think. Yeah, it's popped up a couple of times. It's a good good Samaritan study, a good one. But this is where some Princeton University psychologists decided to conduct a study based on the old biblical story of the Good Samaritan. So if you remember it, the story from the New Testament of Luke tells of a traveler who's been beaten down, he's been smacked up and robbed, and he's sitting on the side of the road just bleeding in a pretty bad way, so somewhere between Jerusalem and Jericho. Firstly, a priest comes past the man in the street, but you know, the priest doesn't stop. He kind of just crossed the street just looking at him in a weird way, and they got the hell out of there. And there was another person who walked past and just did nothing. But the only person to help was a Samaritan. And he was a member of the despised minority. And he went up to him, bound his wounds and uh, took him into an inn and just looked after him till he got healthy again. So these Princeton psychologists wanted to replicate this story to see how people would respond to a stranger in need. And what they did, they went through all these priests in training and they were asked to prepare a short speech on a theme from the Bible, then walk over to a nearby building to present it to a group of students and then on the way they were going to run into an actor you know someone on the corridor slumped over head down eyes closed coughing and groaning and the question was which people were going to stop and help and which ones weren't so the psychologist tried to test a bunch of different variables to see what had the most impact on who stopped and who didn't so first they asked the students to fill out a questionnaire on why they wanted to study theology whether it was for spiritual fulfillment or career progression Next, they varied the topics on what theme they would prepare their presentation to be about. So it could be a random message on the Bible, and others were actually given specifically the Good Samaritan passage. Then they finally tested the instructions given to the people just before they left. So to one group, after they were given time to prepare, they said, Oh, you're late. They were expecting you to start your talk a few minutes ago. Shit, you better go quickly. (laughs) And then the other group, they said, Great, let's head over there to give the talk. We're a few minutes early, but let's just go over and you know get it get early to set up so you're not under time pressure, mate. So if you were 
to predict which factor would have the biggest impact, it'd be pretty obvious to guess. You'd think that the person studying theology for intrinsic motivations would be more likely to stop and help. They'd be a caring individual rather than the person who's just doing it to get a good job. Or the person who had literally just read the Good Samaritan study and prepared to talk about it, you'd think they'd say, oh, this looks a bit familiar. I might stop and help this bloke. But it turns out that those two factors actually had no impact on on the results. The only thing that did matter was if they were in a rush or not. Yes. So being in a rush here is obviously the the context. If you're a good person, you think you're just going to be a good person all the way through. But the context here was much more powerful than the actual people in this study. It turns out that 63% of the people where they said, oh, you're a bit early, just head over and get set up, 63% of those people stopped and helped. Whereas the ones that they said, hurry up, you're running late, only 10% of people stopped to offer assistance and the other 90% just turned a blind eye and walked past. So epidemics are very similar to this study. In the transformation and epidemic, the power of context can in a certain moment transform someone into an entirely different person. Imagine that. Imagine if you're a priest... You've literally you've wanted to become a priest your whole life. You've literally just read the Good Samaritan study, and then you see a bloke coughing in the hallway, and you just think, "Oh shit, I'm running late." You just mm. power, use him as like a, a stepladder to just like get to your room quicker. <laughs> yeah. That just that one small tweak can completely change how you approach the world. Absolutely. If you probably think about any genius or inventor in history, put that same person a hundred years earlier, mm. you probably wouldn't ever hear of him. Like Einstein, throwing back to say pre-scientific revolution, say in the year 1300. No one ever hears of Einstein. If you put Steve Jobs 20 years later, someone else has gone through the uh, invention of perhaps the iPhone and whatnot. So, you know, the context of inventions of ideas that always makes a very big deal. So often it comes down to these small tweaks in our environment that can make something tip or not tip. So if you're trying to infect people and sweep them up in your own epidemic, it can be done by firstly focusing on the types of people that are going to spread the message. So this is the law of the few Secondly, it can be done by improving the message itself, which is the stickiness factor. Or finally, it can be achieved through some subtle changes in the circumstances someone finds themselves in. And this is the power of context. Context.